What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 64 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. Pay respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. This episode, we're speaking with Paul Spensley. Paul was the high school head of science, head of biology, and science teacher for over three decades. He was heavily involved in Dylan William and Paul Black's King's College formative assessment project and has built on William and Black's work over his career to refine and improve many of the formative assessment techniques and strategies in the classroom. Paul Spensley's work on formative assessment has been so influential that in 2000 he was given an audience at Buckingham Palace to acknowledge his significant contribution to education. In today's episode, we discuss Paul's book on formative assessment, Successful Science Teaching, but it's really on so much more than just science teaching. This book is an absolute gem, written by a lifelong teacher for teachers. It's unapologetically practical, and that's why I was so keen to have Paul on the podcast. The insights that Paul shares in this episode on everything from improving learning intentions to running quality classroom discussions to helping students to improve their exam strategy technique are not to be missed. I'd also like to remind listeners that if you're keen to never miss a podcast, blog post, or any other exciting educational announcement, then jump onto ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe to make sure that you get all the updates from me about teaching and learning. That web address again is ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. This episode of the ERRR podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational, and this month I'm excited to share that Tom Sherrington and Oliver Cavigliola's new book, Teaching Walkthroughs 3, is now out. With an all-star cast including the likes of Adam Boxer, Effort First, Harry Fletcherwood, Josh Goodrich, Mary Might, Peps McRae, and Eva Hartrell, this is a walkthroughs volume not to be missed. Walkthroughs Volume 3 takes up to 80 high-impact teaching and professional development ideas, strategies and techniques and presents each in a concise description or five-step sequence complete with exquisite illustrations by Oliver Caviglioli. For anyone who is looking to expand their repertoire of teaching, learning and professional development approaches, Walkthroughs Volume 3 is an incredible resource. You can get Walkthroughs 3 at johncatbookshop.com and if you use the code ERRR30 at checkout, you'll receive 30% off Tom and Oliver's new book as well as any other book from John Cat Educational. That code ERRR30 will also get you 30% off my book, Cognitive Load Theory in Action. This episode of the ERRR podcast is also brought to you by Catalyst, a project pioneered by Catholic Education in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn. Catalyst is an evidence-based educational project that's working directly in schools and with teachers across the ACT and parts of New South Wales. Catalyst has its genesis in this podcast and is a structured and strategic approach to bringing the science of reading and the science of learning to life in more than a thousand classrooms. It's drawing on both local and international expertise, including several guests from the ERRR podcast to realise the bold vision of transforming students' lives through learning by developing excellent teachers and leaders. If you'd like to find out more about opportunities at the Catalyst Project and Catholic Education in Canberra, including the professional development that they're running, the way that they are engaging Australian and world-class leaders in evidence-based education, and even to explore employment opportunities, just click on the Catalyst logo or follow the link 
in the show notes. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 64 of the ERRR podcast with Paul Spensley. Paul Spensley, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room podcast. Welcome, Ollie. Thanks for coming on, Paul. Just to start off with, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your experience in education? Well, when I left school, I'd had a pretty rubbishy experience. I didn't like any of the teachers, anything about my school. So I went off and did a four-year degree in biology and education, determined to be better teacher. That was the starting point. When I finished that, I got a job, a nine to 13-year-old middle school. And after several years, the government reorganized and I ended up being part of an 11 to 18 comprehensive, so mixed gender, full range of ability, absolutely everything. And altogether, I spent about 20 years in that comprehensive system. And then I moved to a girls' grammar school, which is a very highly selective school, one of the top sort of 40 schools in the country in England. So it's really, really good. And I spent 10 years there. One other key thing that happened along the way was back in 1998, when I was at Comprehensive, I was involved in a King's College project, which led to the work by Black and William that probably people have heard of called inside working inside the black box and it was that that got me into formative assessment in a really really big way wonderful wonderful that's a that's a lovely concise history from you and and obviously an enormous amount of time in the classroom and very interesting kind of start for you in that most people who have a negative experience at school want to get as far away from school as they possibly can but you kind of you were you were straight back into it keen to do a better job than what you what you'd experience that's wonderful next question for you Paul what do you think is the purpose of school-based education this is actually really simple I ask a few of my People I know are teachers and they're sort of like, oh, that's really hard, but I don't think it is at all. It's just to enhance the life chances of, of students, of pupils. It's as simple as that. The better education, the better life chances. Okay, great. And in terms of the purpose of science education, because we're discussing your book on science education and formative assessment today, what do you think is the purpose of science education more specifically? I think with science, I mean, I've not got kids, but Kids always ask the same question, why? Why is this? Why is that? Kids are naturally scientists. They want to know about the world. And as a science teacher, it's our job to tell people why. And whenever you answer, there's always another why. Okay. Help them go further down the rabbit hole of the whys. Yeah. Very good. We're discussing your book today, which is all about formative assessment and science teaching. And, and your book is structured very, very clearly. It's structured as if a teacher had written it, in fact, Paul. And one of the places that you start is you start with learning objectives. Let's just jump straight in there. What does it take for a teacher to write a good learning objective? Can I just check? Do you have learning objectives in Australia? Do you use learning objectives? Yes, most certainly they're, they're very popular. Right, okay, cool. I think one of the problems with learning objectives, I mean, I, I've got to say I've, I've seen hundreds of lessons, mostly science lessons, but hundreds of lessons. One of the problems with, science, with learning objectives is that teachers write what they sort of generally want to find out during the lesson, what they think kids are going to be able to do. And the point that I would say is that a learning objective should be for the students, not for the teacher. 
it shouldn't be some sort of vague aim so that the teacher knows what's going on. It should be something that's absolutely crystal clear so that the students know what they're going to be learning in that lesson. It should be more like success criteria rather than a sort of vague aim, if that makes any sense. Yeah, could you give us an example of maybe a vague one and then how that could be changed to be more specific and student-friendly? Well, one of the classic ones, I'm a, I'm a biologist, one of the classic ones I see again and again is people write things like, you know, to be able to describe photosynthesis or to be able to explain photosynthesis. And you're like, well, if you think about that as a statement, that could be for any age from like 11 up to 18. You know, what the hell have they got to do? It's meaningless. One that I used as an example in the book was the one about sort of, you know, to be able to describe and explain the adaptations of animals to cold climates. Now, that sounds fine, and the teacher knows what they've got to do, but the kids haven't got a clue. Now, I would change that, and I would make it so that it was two separate things. First of all, to be able to state at least three adaptations that polar bears have to help them survive in cold climates, and then to be able to explain how those three adaptations help them survive in cold climates. And I think sort of that then gives the students a really clear idea of what you mean by describe and explain. Mm. So you, you've gone, and this was something that was, I found quite interesting in the book, you, you really emphasise the value of numbering things or numbering the expectations for students. So there it was, you know, name three adaptations that yeah. polar bears have to cold climates. Well, why do you see that as important? Numbering isn't the only way of doing it, but it is a very, very good way of doing things. Apart from anything else, the idea of numbering makes it very, very clear to the students how far they've got along that learning journey during the lesson. You know, I've done one out of three, I've done two out of three. You know, that is something that is crystal clear for students. You know, that kid next to me has done two and I've only done one. I'm behind. That You can judge that in a way that you can't judge, describe and explain these adaptations. And again, I think it's key for the students to be able to do that, not for the teacher to keep having to do it. Got it. And I I imagine you've kind of advocated for this approach to learning objectives as you've moved between schools and as you've taught and as you've worked in different departments. Have you come across any pushback to this kind of changing of the format of, of learning objectives? No, it's been quite the opposite, literally, totally. I mean, my book is called Successful Science Teaching, but, I mean, I've done whole school CPDs, loads of schools, and the number of teachers from other departments, history, psychology, maths, who've said, you know, this has really made a difference. My kids really know now you know, what they are doing. They, it's made all the difference to how they feel about the lessons and how that easily they can measure their own success and the confidence that gives kids. No, it's been amazing. That's great. And you mentioned before, um, numbering isn't the only way, but it's a very good way of writing a good learning objective. What are some of the other ways? As long as you have really, really clear success criteria that the students can understand, it doesn't have to be like a number of things. It could be that you say, you know, by the end of the lesson, you need to be able to do, and then it just needs to be a clear statement. You know, it could be draw a graph of this or that, you know, chemical reaction or whatever. You know, it could be a skill like that. 
Okay. And if, if we return back to your photosynthesis example, what are some better um, learning intentions you've seen that relate to photosynthesis rather than describe and explain or describe photosynthesis? I mean, again, if you said something like, you know, to be able to state what each of the products of photosynthesis were and what happened to each of the products of photosynthesis as another learning objective, already you've broken it down and made it a bit easier. And depending on how you're wording that, you're going to give an idea, you know, because, for example, if you said, you know, to be able to describe the difference between the light-dependent and light-independent stages of photosynthesis, then clearly you're talking about something quite different. So I think sort of being able to sort of pigeonhole it and think in terms of the students, think what do you really, really want them to be able to do by the end of that lesson? Because we as teachers tend to know that, but we don't share it. Yeah. Does this mean that we end up with many more learning objectives than a, than a teacher would usually have? Quite possibly. I would say to avoid going beyond three, more often than not, I would probably only have two. But I, if I thought that I needed any more than that, I would probably break it down and make the lesson almost into smaller parts and have one or two and then stop partway through and have a check and then have another one or two. But certainly, what's interesting is that at primary school, kids are used to, in, in Britain, kids are used to success criteria for learning. But we come to secondary school, we go to these weird aims, basically. Mm. Okay. Thanks, Paul. The next thing we're moving on to is this, this idea of plenaries. Now, I understand this is a word that's used a bit more frequently in the UK than it is in Australia. So maybe we'll start off with, what is a plenary? In the UK, it's generally... A lesson starts with some sort of starter activity. Then you have all the, the bits and pieces, the main bulk of the lesson. The plenary, and there could be two or three of them during the lesson, is the bit where you supposedly check the learning of the lesson. Traditionally, it comes at the end of the lesson. In many cases, it might be a past question, a discussion or whatever, just to make sure that the students have actually learned and you can demonstrate their learning. So that was, is what a plenary would be. Mm, got it. So it's kind of a, a point to pause it and check for understanding. Yeah. Interestingly, in, in this interview plan, I had, because, you know, I just said, where does a plenary come? Or what is a plenary? And you said, usually you have a starter and then you have the body of the lesson and you have a plenary. So I wanted to start this interview talking about starters because I saw that as what comes, you know, just before or just after a learning intention. But you said, actually, Ollie, can we please cover plenaries first? So why did you want to talk about plenaries before starters, Paul? Traditionally, when teachers plan lessons, they plan teaching. They get in their mind what they're going to sort of need to teach. They come up with some learning objectives. And then what they do is they plan a range of tasks. And then at the end of that, they bolt on a plenary. Now, the problem with that idea is twofold. Firstly, the plenary is a bolt on rather than being a key part of the lesson. And the second problem is that if time is short, it gets scrapped. Teachers inevitably leave that part of the lesson, you know, they rush it or they scrap it because the content in science seems to be the most important thing of all. Now, I disagree with that approach completely and I think the most important thing is once you've got your learning objectives, the next thing you should do when you're planning lessons is to think, right, how am I going to actually measure to see whether the kids have met those success criteria? So you need to know what your planner is going to be 
before you do anything else. And so that's why I'd like to talk about planning is before anything else. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah, it's plan what students are going to learn, plan how you're going to check whether they've learned it, and then plan how you're going to get them to learn it. That, that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. So what does a good plenary look like, Paul? Well, I think the most important thing is it has got to be really specifically focused on what those success criteria were in the learning objective. So if you're going to say, right, I want to know three adaptations for a polar bear living in a cold climate, there's no point at the end of the lesson having a plenary that doesn't check those. You know, it's got to be really specifically tailored for those. And I think that's the key point. And whatever type of plenary, there are millions of them on the internet, whatever type you use, it's got to actually specifically check those. And it may be that you need a couple of different types of plenary, part, you know, part of an exam question and a bit of discussion to check two different learning objectives. Mm. So far we've defined a plenary as an opportunity during the lesson, sometimes during the lesson, sometimes often at the end of the lesson, for you to check where the students have taken away the key learning objectives. So to me, that would say, okay, well, let's at the end of the lesson then just give students a little quiz that says, you know, name three adaptations of polar bears to cold climates and and explain how they are adaptations to cold climates. Is that an appropriate plenary or are there other things we should be doing? I think there's some really good things that you can do. Again, if, for example, you decided, right, I'm going to give them some short questions at the end, say multiple-choice questions. People like multiple-choice questions. The problem you run into there, if you give kids four or five multiple-choice questions and there's four possible answers and there's one correct answer for each one, well, first of all, how many do they need to get right for them and you to know that they've actually achieved that learning? Secondly, if there's a one in four chance of guessing, you know, like how much do you know that they're getting it right by learning as opposed to guessing? Now, if I was doing multiple choice questions at the end, I would probably have perhaps four answers, three or four questions. But uh, in some of the questions, there might not be any answers that were correct. And some of them, there might be two or three or one. Students would never know. And then I might say, right, okay, you've got to get at least 60% of these right to prove to me that you've actually learned that. Now, they don't know how many there are, and that makes a whole different level of checking than a few questions at the end. Mm. But what about just a free free answer question if rather than multiple choice? Would that be sufficient, or have you got some better ways of doing it? If it was an exam question or anything like that, I think the key thing, I mean, I, I, you know, Using a past exam question is a great idea. I think the key thing is to actually make sure the kids know what success is. So don't just give them an, a you know a couple of exam questions. Say to them, right, you would need to be able to get seven out of ten in this question to be able to be sure that's enough, or nine out of ten, or whatever it is. They need to see what the actual learning level is rather than just, you know, okay, do a question, yeah, you've done okay on it. Mm. Okay. And in, in your book you talked about some other things, like you talked about discussions as plenaries, you talked about explaining learning objectives, you talked about traffic light keywords and phrases and, and guess the learning objectives. Would you explain some of these to us? Discussions are much more difficult than they sound. I genuinely feel that. But things like spot the mistake, putting, you know, 10 
phrases on the board and maybe three of them have got errors in them or some of them have got only half an error perhaps or maybe none of them have got errors and you say to kids right can you find the mistakes in these and and then you get kids working in little groups talking about those and seeing whether they can think. it's very good for picking up things like sort of um, basic you know misconceptions like the, the idea that kids think that light travels towards their eye yeah, sorry, from their eye towards objects when they see things. So, you know, like that sort of thing is easy to pick out with a sort of spot a mistake. Things like guessing the learning objectives, sometimes I might sort of, um, if kids are really uh, used to using really good quality learning objectives and, and success criteria, I might sort of say, right, okay, there's going to be two learning objectives today. And uh, then partway through the lesson I might sort of stop and say right okay we've covered this much what do you think might be a good learning objective for that and just getting them to actually talk about it you know if you were going to write a learning objective on the board now what do you think it would say it's a really powerful way of finding out you know what kids actually think they are learning and what they actually think they have learned hmm that's that's an interesting one. Kind of a, a question that's prompted in my mind is whether the extent to which you found that the, your teaching practices and your recommended teaching practices changed, if at all, when you moved from the comprehensive schools that you spent 20 years in to the grammar school where you ended your career. Interestingly, really not at all. I taught 16-year-olds who couldn't even remember the letters of the alphabet. And I taught 16-year-olds who were going to go on to do medicine. And literally everything that I am talking about works across the board. People may not have the language skills sometimes. They may not be able to express things in writing. But kids can still sort of join in a conversation and share things. And there are examples in the book of some very low, a very low ability young lad, for example, um, who... I've mentioned, not not personally, but I've talked about in the book. And, you know, these things work across the board without a shadow of doubt. I've, I've worked in many, many other schools other than my own, and there's no doubt that, you know, this isn't something that you need to adapt to different levels of ability. Not every single technique will work with every single kid or every single class, but there's enough here to try without a doubt. Cool. Your book's about formative assessment. So I would imagine that this whole idea of plenaries, you know, for them to be formative, we need to then do something with the information. So did you have any kind of structures or approaches for, say, you've got one of those multiple choice sets of multiple choice questions, you know, some of them, some of them have multiple right answers, some of them have no right answers and you go through it and well, first of all, how do you practically actually go through the answers do you just talk through them do you you know that's i'm really keen for you to talk to us about the nitty-gritty of how you'd actually go through that and then what would you do with the information that if students clearly don't understand what's happened i think that's a really good point because one of the things about sort of um the whole idea of plenaries and that is that they should allow the opportunity for you to say well actually we haven't learned that very well we need to do that again or something In the book, I've talked about the way we can structure sections of work, topics of work and things. And I think the idea that you finish a lesson, do a plenary and move on to the next lesson regardless or the next topic regardless is something we really need to move away from. And I think that's a really big thing. 
if I got to the end of the lesson and it turned out the kids hadn't learned what I thought they should have done, I think the most important thing is that I would be starting my next lesson by going back and saying, right, okay, well, where did we go wrong? What were the problems? And we'd start from there. Okay. Did you want to add anything about the way you you would actually go through the answers? Because that's something I've been trying to, like, I feel like I've got a method now, right? So, right now, the way that I go through answers, I, I always start the lesson with a starter. Mm-hmm. And the way I go through answers is I've got, every student does the starter on a piece of paper. This is in maths. And then at the end of, once I've all, once I can see they've all finished it, I'll make sure they've all got a mini whiteboard and a marker. And I'll say, all right, what answer did you get to question one on your mini whiteboards in five, four, three, two, one, they'll all hold up the answers and I'll be able to look across the classroom and go, okay, 100% correct, good job, let's move on to two. Or I might say, okay, we're only about 60% of us got that, let me go through this. Or I might say, okay, only two of you struggled and I might just, you know, subtly point to some students or say some names, like I say, can you just make a note for me to come to raise your hand during silent work time so I can come and help you with that. Um, so that's that's kind of the where I've come to in terms of going through answers. That's exactly the sort of thing that I would have done. Cool. So do you have any, can you add, add to that at all? I think the only thing is that I would use students as much as possible. So if, say, for example, two-thirds of the class had got a, a, an answer right and a third of them hadn't, how would you see if two-thirds of the class got the Did you use mini whiteboards as well? or By using little whiteboards or by having a little vote or something like that, then I might get – I might not even say at that stage whether it was the one-third or the two-third that was right. So I might not say which third or two-thirds got, got the question right. What I might do would be to say, right, okay, somebody from the two-thirds group, you explain why you think your answer's right. Somebody from the other group, right, you explain your whether you think your answer's right and then choose another random kid and say, right, okay, who do you think has got the best explanation and why and so on and begin to get people to sort of be able to justify their answers a bit and then see whether that makes a difference to some of the ones who've got it wrong. Okay. So a bit of a vote discussion, re-vote, yeah. and the discussion. Okay, that's, that's very similar to Harvard professor Eric Mazur on a few episodes ago, and that's essentially the peer instruction approach that, that he's developed. So that's great to, great to see. Now, in the book, you had a couple of really good specific plenary questions that I just wanted to, to make sure our listeners got to hear. Did you, do you want to share them, Paul? I think one of the ones that uh, I particularly like, and I've used it loads and loads of times, is the idea that if you could go forward in time to the point where you were just going to answer an exam question on this work that we've done today, what would be the two pieces of advice you would give to yourself and why? And it's absolutely brilliant. You can do that at literally any topic, any level. And it's always absolutely fascinating because what you hear students saying isn't always what you would expect you know as a teacher you might think oh they'll talk about you know the two key points of knowledge and then you find that somebody you know would remind themselves about a skill or something you hadn't even thought of or they've got some sort of little rhyming method or something for remembering the order of something that you'd never even heard of before and it's always absolutely fascinating you know it could be that they they want to give themselves advice on you know the order a way to do the maths in the question which you might have thought was you know really easy but they may be lacking confidence in maths it's an astonishingly good one and the kids love it 
because they think it's great fun because it's almost it's not like it's not like work it's like a bit of fun oh if i could travel in time absolutely love that that's a great question paul so just to repeat repeat for for listeners the the plenary question is if you could go forward in time until just before you were going to answer an exam question on today's work what two pieces of advice would you give yourself and why and i like that and why as well that's that's really really rich Thanks for that, Paul. That's that's plenaries. Maybe we'll have to have a plenary at the end of this podcast. But for now, let's move straight on to to another idea that you cover in your book, which is the idea of starters. To start us off with starters, Paul, what is the point of a starter? Again, I'm not quite sure how different people do it in different countries. I know in schools over here, a lot of emphasis on starters, particularly with schools where they have problems with behaviour with students, is on making a starter that's like exciting and brings the lesson to life and all of that sort of thing, which is great. But from my point of view, If you do that but don't find out what the student's prior learning is and where they're actually starting in relation to the learning objectives, then it's fairly pointless. So my key thing will be to say that what is most important yeah, it's got to you know get their attention, be interesting, get them, you know, on side and so on. But it's got to actually find out where the students are, in particular for the students, they need to know where they are at the start of the lesson in terms of their learning with reference to what they're going to be doing. Mm. We're kind of getting a bit of a theme of polar bears in this podcast, so let's stick with that theme. If we were going to have a starter for that lesson, what might a good starter for that lesson look like? I might have had, for example, a starter where I got the kids to perhaps discuss in a small group anything they knew about polar bears why they thought they, you know, what they look like and and why, and just get them chatting about it. Because you might actually find that they already know quite a lot. But on the other hand, I mean, as I discovered from, uh, if you read the book, I mean, I had a student who didn't know even know what colour polar bears were. So I think something like that might be quite useful where you just go around and you listen to the kids. I wouldn't even ask for any feedback. I'd just let them chat on their table or something and just listen to what they were saying. Okay. What other types of starters would you would you do? One of my favourite ones is a three two one starter, um, which I do quite often, where I might say, picking up on a topic that we've done in the past that is relevant for today's work, you know, and say for say say they're doing work on, I don't know, circuits, for example, and they've done basic work on electrical circuits in the past. So I might have a question that the starter says, right, okay, give me three differences between series and parallel circuits. Two advantages of using a parallel circuit to light a house. One thing that other people in this room might have forgotten or not fully understood about series and parallel circuits. And if you word it so that it's other people in the room might have forgotten, you will find that kids will say things that they're unsure of and so on. But because you've used that phrase, other people might have forgotten, you'll get kids saying, well, I think people might have forgotten or might not understand fully, and they'll say something that they don't understand fully. Okay. And that last bit is obviously the key bit. Yeah. I like it. You had a couple of others. What One was, why can't I answer this exam question? What's that one? Okay, that's one I've used a lot, obviously, with exam level classes, GCSE, A level uh, classes. 
uh, put an, an exam question on the board, particularly if it's a, a longer question with quite a number of marks, which you might get, you know, in, in an advanced level paper. And say, so, right, okay, this is a question you'd need to be able to answer. Why can't we answer it right now? Now, you know, in many cases, you might think, okay, well, it's just because we haven't got the knowledge, you know, we've got to learn some stuff today. But you may find that it's not knowledge that's a problem. And, and that's a really good thing for kids to notice. They might realise that actually it's a math skill that they you know, can't interpret a graph or a table or a diagram. It could be that they don't have the vocabulary needed or haven't got the, uh, the clarity. They may not even be able to understand what the question wants them to do. So there's a whole lot of things from which we would then go on to perhaps develop learning objectives depending on what their answers were okay cool that's a really really novel idea what else you got another one that i do at the beginning of topics is this idea of traffic lighting words or phrases so for example an a-level group doing work on the kidney i may have given them all the new biological terms and phrases that were going to come up in that section of work now, they would traffic light those. A green traffic light would be, I've heard this term before, osmosis. I know what it means. I'm completely happy with it. A red traffic light would be, never heard of this before. I've never heard of a, a nephron or whatever, and I'm going to say that I don't have a clue. An amber one would be, well, I've heard of this before, but I can't properly remember it. And obviously, they're the key ones because they're ones that you – they may have been taught before, but hadn't actually learned. And so that's really useful. It's also useful in another way in that it shows the students that everything they do builds on something else that they've already done, you know, and it's all a continual learning, and that they can see where they're coming from and where they're going to again. And that's a really good one. I know that one you mentioned when you emailed was the I went shopping idea because you know that's a game that kids play all the time so again that's a cool one if you're starting a lesson and it's a follow-on from the one i might say right okay during the last lesson during the last lesson we learned and then the kids would have to say the first kid would have to say something and then the second kid would have to say during the last lesson i learned that class and they'd have to say something else and you just keep going until they run out and again, it's amazing which things you see they remember and which ones they don't. Yeah, I really like that one. That's great because, I mean, I was just thinking back to the last lesson with my students. I don't know how far, how long I could go for just de- defining or recalling stuff from last lesson. So in my last lesson, it was with my year rates, it was something like circumference is 2 pi r and then that's, another student could say r represents the radius. Another student could say radius is the distance from the center of a circle to the outside and one could say circumference is the distance around the circle and one one other one could say diameter is the distance across the circle but after that i don't know i don't know what else i'd say what but if you did it on like if if you did it with small groups Uh so like a, a few kids on a table they could all be saying the same things and as you're wandering around you might notice that some people know all of those on their table and some people miss some on one table yeah, okay. And that's the sort of thing. So it doesn't have to last long, but you can get a lot of information quite quickly. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I like that. Now, my, my starters in my classes are much more boring than yours, Paul. My, my starters, at least in my year eight maths class, 
they're, they're basically every, every day they look the same. There's a, between about seven and 10 questions on a printed sheet. The, the students come in and they grab one and they start working on it silently straight away. And it will include usually one or two questions from the last lesson or test the concepts in the last lesson, a couple of questions from within the last week, a couple of questions from the last month and a couple of questions from a little bit earlier than that even. Any thoughts on, on a starter like that? I mean, what you've just said is absolutely great because, like, the idea that when you said, you know, like, and a couple of questions from the last lesson, I was thinking, yeah, that's okay, but what about, you know, previous lessons and so on? But then you went on and said exactly that because that is exactly the sort of thing that you would need to do. You'd need to say, you know, right, okay, but what about two weeks ago and what about four weeks ago? One thing I might sort of do, I mean, one thing you could do might be to have some questions written out with answers already written out, some of which are right answers and some of which are wrong answers, but they don't know which ones are right and which ones are wrong or what's wrong about them. And rather than just doing the questions, they have to actually look at the questions and see whether they can, particularly if there's, you know, particular mistakes that kids make about, I don't know, doing fractions or whatever, you can include some of those. Yeah. You know, that's just another way around it. It just something different to do at the start of the lesson. Mm. Yeah, I like that. Cool. All right, so we've had a look at learning intentions. We've, we've learned that they should be really specific, that they should be really understandable to the students. And one really good way of doing that is actually breaking them up into more parts and also specifying numbers of things that students can identify. We've had had a talk a bit about plenaries and the key idea that plenaries should come before or should come straight after planning plenaries, should come straight after planning your learning intentions and they should be directly linked to each other. That's the key idea there. And if we can use them formatively, that's ideal as well. And we've had a bit of a look at starters and starters as a way of identifying what students already know about a topic was kind of the key point that you made there, Paul. We're now kind of ready, I hope, to move into the idea of presentation of concepts. In a science class, Paul, how would you usually start to introduce a concept to students in your classes? Right. So if I was planning the lesson, I think one of the key things is if you're planning it, you plan it in that order. You have the learning objectives. You then plan your your plenary. You then plan your starter. Now, the bit in between what I call the learning sandwich is the bit that should be flexible right? Too many teachers, particularly in science, worry about the content and squash and move the, the starters and the plenaries and so on. Too many teachers in science especially and in subjects like geography and that where there's a lot of content to get through and maths, for example, what they want to do is like treat it as like, I've got to get through this amount of stuff. And very often it's like, right, this is something new. We're going to do this today. We're going to do it for a couple more days. Then there's something else that's new. That doesn't help kids at all. So if I was introducing new concepts, first of all, nothing is a new concept. I can't stand this whole idea. You know, it's the, you're probably too young too young for Monty Python, but the idea, they used to have the now for something totally, completely different. Nothing is completely different. With kids, with a well-chosen starter, they should always see that what is coming is building on something they've done before. So, you know, if I'm introducing a new concept, it's like, remember this we did, now we're moving it on a little bit to here. And by the end of the lesson, we're going to get to here. That's a 
different approach, I think. I think it's just having that attitude. The, what you do with your topic, you know, how you present your, your work and so on, I, I think is really down to the teacher, whether you have work sheets, you know, presentations, practicals, whatever. But don't give kids the impression what they're doing is something new and different and so on. Does that make sense? Yeah, I like it, Paul. And I, I'm just expanding on your metaphor of the, the sandwich of the lesson where you're kind of learning intention, your starter are the, the top piece or the bottom piece of bread and the the plenary is the bottom or vice versa. Mm. And I'm just thinking that makes a lot of sense here because you may have some sandwiches which only have a bit of marmite in the middle, right? Yeah. It's just really it's just really not much there because you recognize that there doesn't need to be that much there, that lesson. But there may be other ones that are like, you know, the BLT, it's got everything in it. Yeah. Um, bacon, lettuce, tomato, you add some cheese and whatever, mayonnaise, whatever else you need. And that might be a really, you know, rich sandwich, but, you know, we've really also got to make sure that we've got those two slices of bread. Otherwise, it's really not a, not a learning sandwich at all. So I, I do like that. Uh, I do like that kind of metaphor. And I think what is important is that people tend, I mean, science teachers especially, tend to think that they have X amount of content that they've got to get into so many minutes and therefore everything has got to be put into every lesson and so on. What we, what we should be doing is thinking, right, I've got this range of content to cover over X number of weeks and I've got to put the bits into this lesson which fit between my starter and my plenary for these kids. It might be different for the same topic for another group. You know, I might be able to do an extra task in the lesson because those ones are a bit quicker or a bit, you know, better at doing this. We've got to get away from the one-size-fits-all so that the, the, the filling in the sandwich gets altered depending on the starter of the, of the lesson. So you may start in a different place. You may drop one of your tasks. You may add in a task and pull one out later on flexibility yeah that 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 flexibility that's something that we'll touch on a bit later because that was something that i in your book that i found a little bit controversial so i'm really looking forward to exploring that with you a bit more building on this kind of sandwich metaphor paul yeah it's quite interesting i was running a workshop on retrieval the other day like retrieval practice and in particular using starters as retrieval activities and one of the questions from a teacher was you know, how long does this take? You know, you've got a 50-minute lesson. How long does it take students to do 10 questions and then for you to actually go through them and some of them in quite a lot of detail? And my kind of answer was, well, it can actually take a long time. It can take almost the whole lesson sometimes. But in my mind, it's often a lot better to focus on using tasks formatively and in a, in a way that stimulates retrieval rather than focusing on the middle of the sandwich every lesson. Because say I'm teaching, I just talked about how I was teaching how to find the circumference of a circle in the last lesson with my year eights. I could spend the whole lesson doing some big exploratory activity where students all come to deeply understand the relationship between the radius and the circumference of a circle. But if I just do that in one lesson and never revisit it, because I spend every lesson doing such an exploration, in three months, they're going to have forgotten how to calculate the circumference of a circle from the radius because they haven't looked at it again. So I'd much rather do, if I'm short of time, just do one example, get them to do one example, and then get them to do it again the next lesson, then again in three lessons, and then again in five or seven lessons, then again in 15 lessons. And I, I'm actually more confident that that's going to stick better for them than if I spend the whole of a lesson on, whole of every lesson on that something completely new, as Monty Python would say, or something completely different, I think it was. 
and you know really beefing up the the middle of that sandwich i mean it's interesting because like if you if you see science lessons particularly with 11 to 14 year olds when they're first at secondary schools they do two or three weeks worth of work on plants and then they go and do two or three weeks worth of work on electrical circuits and then two or three weeks worth of work on rocks and you know it's all pigeonholed and it's like lesson one we're going to do this lesson two we're going to do that lesson three we're going to do that and the teachers are so obsessed with sort of getting through content that there's none of what you've just been describing i described it in a book and i wrote an article right back in about 2000 for king's college it literally feels like being a hamster on a wheel literally teaching science for many science teachers is like all i've got to do is get through more and more and more and more and more content and they just don't step back and say well actually i haven't got to get through loads of content what i've got to do is make these kids learn stuff and that's different Mm. yeah very different it's um i believe it's a john wooden quote it's about distinguishing or differentiating between i've taught this and they've learned it so yeah and the hamster wheel is another Another way to think about that. Yeah. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion with Paul Spenceley stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, as well as to dive a little deeper into some of the ideas within Paul's book, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show. And in return, they receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term and taken directly to the spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. I'm really excited about this month's summary because Paul has given so many practical tips throughout this podcast, with more to come in the second half. And I just can't wait to write up all his advice on writing better learning intentions, running effective plenaries, what makes a good starter, how to run effective discussions, and Paul's methods for helping students to perform better in assessments, which you'll hear all about in the second half of the episode. So if you'd like an actionable summary of this episode of the ERRR podcast, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production and sustainability of the show, simply go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR and sign up to support the show for as little as $1 per month or the average donation of $5 per month. That's patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now, back to this episode of the ERRR podcast with Paul Spensley. So that's presentation of concepts, and we didn't spend much time on that. In fact, we didn't answer the question at all. Um, we just talked about how it's not that important to plan or it's not as important to plan introducing concepts. But maybe let's return just to that to give you another chance to answer the original question and not emphasize the, the very, very important points around it. How do you, when you do, introduce a new, maybe it's not new, but a, a slightly novel uh, idea to see? Okay. In terms of introducing a topic or something to kids, it will be very much dependent on whether or not it's something they need to be able to understand from a practical point of view. So, you know, like we're going to do an experiment to find this out or whether it's something that they may need to find out from sort of like research or whether it was, you know, I mean, I might do a presentation. That part of the lesson would be no different to what a normal teacher would be doing in terms of science and might be finding some information out from a worksheet 
using a diagram to produce a table or whatever. Mm. Okay, so it's dependent. Let's come back to our polar bears example. So say you run the plenary. The plenary was have a chat in your table groups about polar bears, what you know about polar bears and what they look like, why they might look like that, how they behave, why they may behave by that, like that in relation to their environment. You've gone around, you've found out that they know they're white, they know they've got thick fur, things like that. And by the end, you want them to be able to list three adaptations of polar bears to the cold and why those adaptations make sense. What does what the content presentation or content engagement look like in this lesson? That would depend on the, the age and ability of the group, but it may be that they do research on a computer, for example, to find out if that was possible. They might sort of be given a set of questions, you know, find out what colour, you know, polar bears are, why they're that colour, you know. It may be that they're given sort of a range of different textbooks and asked to look things up or whatever. You know, you've got to find out this information from here, this information from there. It might be that I do a, a presentation, I might do an interactive presentation where I get, you know, different kids to come up depending on what I've heard people say at the beginning and so on. So the actual filling in the sandwich, if you like, would very much depend on the attainments and abilities of the students and the type of time constraints that I had and so on. But those parts, as, as I said, would be sort of like the things that you, we would have in our shared area, you know, on the computer. We might have different resources, worksheets, presentations and things that we may dip into. Those are the things that teachers are good, science teachers are good at. Definitely keeping loads and loads of presentations and things. I'm sure maths teachers as well. All right, cool. So that you, that's what you feel teachers are already doing pretty well and already have more than enough of. So yeah. something we can kind of kind of move on from. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, let's move to this tricky topic of discussions now, Paul. You said there's something very that's very hard and something that's often often not done that well. Before, before we jump in there, why why in the science class in particular do you see discussions as something important for for us to do? Well, obviously, it goes back to that idea that, you know, science is about the question of why, in effect. Science is all about asking questions. How does that happen? Why does that happen? Questions are crucial to science. Science teachers tend to be paranoid about the amount of content they've got to get through. So whereas your go-to starter is some short questions, for science teachers, their go-to starter is a quick discussion. And it's also they go to plenary at the end of a lesson. You know, ask a few quick questions and that'll be fine. I'll, I'll know that they've learned something and so on. I think that's one of the problems that people think that every science teacher, because they're a teacher, can run a discussion. Uh, and people don't, you know. I mean, I, I, I've seen lesson plans where people, you know, some of the trainee teachers write three or four sides of A4 about a, for a lesson plan, and at the beginning it'll say, you know, um, start a discussion as if it's just going to happen. It's like discussions don't just happen. They are really, really difficult to do. To find out what kids actually understand and know is not easy. Yeah, couldn't agree more. So why are discussions important in science class? If you don't get discussions, you don't find out enough from your kids. If you go into science lessons, too often what you see as a supposed discussion looks like a game of tennis between the teacher and several individuals. 
throw a question, it comes back, throw a question, it comes back. My description of a discussion is more like a game of netball where it gets passed around all over the place. I don't think what people think about when they hear the word discussion very often is what I think about. Too often they think it means the teacher asking lots of questions. To me, discussions are kids talking and the teacher saying as little as possible in between. Mm. All right, let's try to model this. I've got a few characters here. I'll get a few characters in the in the screen. We've got bottle student. We've got yeah, just random things on my desk. We've got tablet student. Yeah. We've got microphone student. Okay. And we're going to have a discussion, Paul. Yeah. With these different students in in our classroom about polar bears. Right. Let's go. So, I'm going to ask a question about polar bears. So, I might start off with something like, okay, how many of the objects we've got in front of us are flexible in any way whatsoever? All right, well, microphone replies, I'm a kind of flexible because my cord to the computer is a bit flexible. Yeah. Tablet student replies, I'm a little bit flexible because I'm made of plastic container and bottle student says, I'm not flexible at all, I'm made of glass. Right, okay, so... My question now is only going to be for the flexible students, right? So I've sort of like narrowed down to a sort of small group already and I've put the focus on those, but I'm going to then say the unflexible students are going to be asked to comment on what they hear afterwards. So that's put an emphasis on them having to listen. They're not going to be able to opt out because they know that they're going to have a role to play in this later. So. I might then have a question like, what might happen if a polar bear was born that didn't have any fur? And I would let two, three of my flexible students answer. Okay. So would you call on them or would you just wait for volunteers? I may sort of like pick people randomly, probably. Okay, let's keep the role play going. I was just being awkward and making none of the characters answer. So leaving, I'm, I'm leaving that one in your court, court Paul, because I want to see how you deal with no students answering. Okay, right. Okay, so I okay, so I might say right. Okay, tablets. You you know, tell me an answer. So this is the tablet speaking now. Yeah. If pol- if a polar bear was born without any fur, it would probably freeze to death. Okay, and I might say thank you, and then say what was it? Um, wire, uh, uh, headphones. Um, <laughs> Yeah, well, we got, yeah, that'll that'll do. We'll, we'll introduce a headphone. Sounds good. Yeah, yeah. So, a headphone student says, "Yeah, they just look really weird because they wouldn't have any fur, so they would look like a weird polar bear." Okay. Have we got any more flexible ones, or was that it? Have we done all the flexible ones? Well, we've got the microphone's kind of flexible because it's got the flexible cord. So maybe microphone could say something like, "If it wasn't white, maybe some maybe it might get eaten by some other polar bears." who were hungry because they'd know that it was going to die anyway or because it would look weird. Okay. I then might go to Bottle and say, right, okay, Bottle, out of those three answers, whose do you think was best and why? Okay. Bottle replies, I don't remember who said it, but someone said something about the, the polar bear freezing. So probably that's probably the best one because that's probably the most realistic answer. Okay, I then might go to somebody else who was inflexible and say, can you remind Bottle who it was who said that one? Okay, this is Watch. 
so watch says watch is also not very flexible oh bottle i think it was actually tablet who said that that with that that first idea about it freezing okay so we've got some basic ideas that we've we've picked up from that question and obviously it's quite difficult because like you'd normally have like quite a few more kids to be joining in but the idea that you bounce a question around you get another question kids to be listening and ready to say something you might turn around to somebody who hasn't been involved and just simply say to them which person used this word or that word or whatever in their answer you know who didn't say this you know which person didn't mention the fact that the polar bear might die who mentioned the polar bear's mother just to get the idea that kids have to be actively listening you only have to do that a little bit now and again for kids to realize actually i've got to be switched on here he's not doing table tennis with individuals he's not just going bottle 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 because what tends to happen in science discussions content is king people are worried so they ask a fairly straightforward question the almost universal starter question for a science lesson is right what did we do last lesson you'll get a few hands up, somebody will answer, they'll say, yeah, what about the next person? And they'll add a bit more and they'll say, yeah, but there was something more important than that. So they'll ask the third person and they'll say, I'm not sure. And so they'll give them a clue. Well, do you remember it was all, it was about, you know, we talked about something. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, you've nearly got it. And then they'll move to the fourth person and then that person gets it and they go, yeah, great. Now the first two people who answered aren't going to answer again in the rest of that lesson because they've been made to feel like rejects because like, they've been told basically well you didn't remember properly and that means they're less likely to contribute to any future discussion you've also sort of decided what you wanted to hear before you've even asked the question and you've steered it in that direction so people will say you know like what's the name of the green color in implants you know oh it sounds a bit like the same stuff we have in you know swimming pools and and then when somebody gets it right they go oh great right we've all learned that let's move on that's not a discussion and it does happen like that in science all the time you might be sitting there thinking god you know that's not what my lessons are like you know, from a mass point of view. But that is what you would see if you went into a lot of science lessons, unfortunately. Yeah, trust me, Paul, I've, I've run plenty of discussions like that, both in my physics class a couple of years ago and also in my maths classroom. So, yeah, I, I, I love those, those tips you've given. Also, I was thinking one other question you could ask the students that's in a similar vein to who said this one or who didn't say this would be, could you nominate someone who hasn't said anything so far so they can, you know, not only identify who has said something, but also identify and, and welcome into the discussion students who haven't made a contribution yet. So that's good. And I and I think the way that you started the question with or the discussion with just something random and fun, like who's who here is flexible. And I know examples in the in the book you use is, is to things like who's who supports a football team that wears a blue jersey or anything like that. You're you're also learning a bit about the students and allowing them to bring it something of themselves into the classroom. So it's quite yeah, it's really welcoming and and lovely. And there was something else you were doing there very consciously. Whenever tablets or or bottle or 
earphone or microphone made a contribution, you weren't actually evaluating the contribution at all. And that might be something that teachers didn't notice you, you were doing or, or you were not doing more to the point. But you, you just said, thank you, in a completely like no evaluation, completely dull tone. Yeah. To use Doug Lemov's terminology, you were managing your tell. You were not giving away to students your assessment. And that, that was great. So, yeah, tell us, tell us about that. Well, I think that is really important. I think starters, what you said about sort of having a random question to start, honestly, the more bizarre the question you ask to get a sort of like, you know, who would like to go to the moon if they could you know, have the opportunity, kids will always put their hand up. And the more random it is, the more kids will be willing to sort of go, oh, I fancy that, you know, answering that question and getting involved. And then that's already got their attention. So they're not, you know, messing around or chatting with their mate or anything. You've already got kids' attention at the start of the discussion. Teachers almost always feel compelled to respond every time a kid says something. What I would quite often do is I would say, you know, right, I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to listen to eight answers before I say anything else. And then we'll move on from there and then this next group. You know, so all eight of you are going to say something, then I'm going to choose somebody who wouldn't like to go on Strictly Come Dancing. And, uh, you know, I would listen to all eight and at best, thank you, or might just, you know, smile at them and just move on. Because otherwise, half the discussion time is the teacher talking. So the less you say, the more the students are saying during the same amount of time. And that, to me, is crucial. It's great, and and it's the same when you're running when you're running um, professional development for teachers as well. You know, you'll you'll ask a question, or or you'll invite a volunteer to to share something, and then they'll kind of be answering to the presenter in the same way that the students answer to the teacher in the classroom. And again, that doesn't embody what a discussion is. A discussion is when the the, the contributor speaks to the group rather than just the person up the, up the front. So what you're doing by saying thank you. Or, or that's one contribution, let's go to the next one, that's two contributions, let's go to the next one. You're actually helping the students to see that the audience for their contribution is not the, the teacher, it's it's the, the class. Can I just add as well, I mean, again, I'm sounding like I'm really sort of putting down on science teachers, but content is such a worry for science teachers. What tends to happen is they want to shoehorn everything other than their key bit of content to the very margins of the lesson. You will hear, if you go into science lessons, people say things like sort of, um, right, you know, we're going to do some quick questions now, and they'll ask a question, and a couple of kids will start messing around, and they'll say something like, you know, can you two be quiet? Because, you know, we've got to get through this quickly because we've got a practical to do. Now, what does that say about the sort of, like, discussion? We've got to get through this quickly. It's not important because we've got to do it quickly because the important thing is the practical we've got to do. Or, you know, we've got, we, you know, if we don't get through this quickly, we won't have time to do. You might just as well say to kids, well, you know, this piece of the lesson isn't important at all. Just sit there and play about with your phone or talk to your mates. But people subconsciously do that all the time. So you have one really good question. I saw a friend of mine did this and he came into, he was starting a whole topic on sort of like ecosystems. And he came in and he said, um, I've just driven here. And he said, there was a, a farmer's field. He said, it's got a greenhouse 
that is nearly the size of Terminal 5 Heathrow Airport. Why do we need greenhouses that big? And that's all he said. And the rest of that lesson was a discussion which was a prelude to a whole topic on ecosystems. What a great question. Yeah. I mean, one of the examples I picked up in the book as well, which I mentioned, was the idea that, I mean, you do work on magnets and you go into the next lesson and teachers will say, yeah, what were the end of the magnets called? What happens if you put two norths together? What happens if you put two souths together? It's all just little questions kids can guess. You know, the teacher who turned around and said, you know, right, we did magnets last lesson. What might happen if we cut a magnet in half? How's that for a question? That really finds out what your kids have learned. Mm, it's a good question. And then crucially, they don't evaluate the answers as they come in. They do what you've just said and they've said, I'm going to listen to eight people's answers and, and then I'm going to ask someone who hasn't contributed an answer to, to share which one, which one they thought was the best and why. Yeah, lovely, lovely question. You've um, you provide us with a good segue, Paul, into the next section, which is all about content. This is the, the kind of controversial bit which I alluded to earlier, but I'd just like to share a little excerpt from your book and then have you comment on it. So, you write, for those who may be thinking at this point that this method of planning and teaching would inevitably mean that content was not fully covered, I agree. Teaching for learning is about quality, not quantity. I would also suggest, if you are concerned by this, to consider how much better a student would do in any exam if they were certain of 66% of their learning rather than had some idea of 100% of it. Or, to put it another way, what is the point of teaching GCSE Level 8 or 9 work to a student who will only ever gain a Level 5? Surely it is more important to ensure that the student is totally confident with all aspects of work at level four and five. Tell us more. Okay. Obviously, I'm talking from a science point of view here. And in the UK, most science lessons for exam classes are, are set into ra- relatively sort of big groups, but they're, they're fairly similar in, a bit, in terms of attainment ability. Yeah. So when you say set, that's the, that's the UK word. The, another word is kind of streaming. Yeah. Students are placed into, a, you know, achievement-based classes. So you'll have a higher class, lower class, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. Now, to my mind, it's like, it's like when you take a driving test, if you took a driving test, if when you were learning to drive, they said, right, okay, for the first couple of weeks, we're going to do it in, you know, like a mini. Then we're going to go on to sort of like, um, you know, a, a, a van. Then we're going to go on to a tow in a caravan. Then we're going to go on to a truck. Then we're going to go on to an articulated truck because you may end up having to do these at some point during your life. That People would think that was absolutely ridiculous. It'd be like, no, I just need to learn to drive a basic car. If I need any of those other bits, I'll do it as and when I need it. For me, it's a bit like that in, in science. There's no point in teaching all the content to everyone and hoping that in you, when you do that with some sort of splattergun approach that some kids are going to learn some of it, some more than others. To my mind, it is much better to have a proper starter and a proper plenary and make sure that the content is learned and learned at the appropriate level. So if I take something like chemical equations, for example, now chemical equations, they could be done as simple words, um, very simple addition equations. You could have displacement equations, you could have 
go on to make balancing equations, and you can have ones with brackets or parentheses. Now, they gradually get harder in terms of levels. If I was teaching chemical equations, I would teach what my students in front of me needed. So if I had students who were confident with word equations and displacement equations, I'd spend more of the time doing balancing and parentheses. If I had students who were never in a million years going to be able to cope with the maths of doing balancing and parentheses, I'd spend more time on the words and the displacement. Too often, everyone seems to feel that they've got to teach everything to everybody because it's in the specification or in the syllabus. You know, see or see kids who've got really low math skills, really low language skills, being told they've got to do balanced chemical equations with, you know, symbols and numbers and everything that they can't cope with. But it's in the syllabus, so we've got to do it. To my mind, that is absolutely pointless. Get them to do the things that are going to get their marks in the exam and get them confident. Uh, I know you're a little bit worried about that. Mm. I see what you're saying. I guess I guess the challenge I have with it is is a couple of challenges to that, I guess, Paul. And I'm really looking forward to your, your thoughts on this because I'm sure I know you've thought about it for many years. One is if, say, say subjects or classes aren't streamed, Surely there's you're probably disadvantaging those higher achieving students by kind of slowing things down and, and not covering, say you don't even get to the end of the content, which is something you would admit may happen if you teach in this way. Surely that's disadvantaging the higher achieving students who would be able to kind of keep up with that pace. That's the first question I'll throw to you. I don't see how higher student students would be disadvantaged because what they would be doing would be, say you have work that goes level five, six, seven, eight, nine, the higher achieving kids will be doing work that was seven, eight, and nine, whilst the medium kids will be doing sort of five, six, seven, and the lower achieving ones will be doing four and five. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about sort of like, you know, not covering what is required. I'm talking about tailoring it for the students who are in front of you. It should be that all learners are learning at the level they need rather than a one-size-fits-all. You can't teach everything to everybody and expect students to simply keep up as if just being aware of the content is in some way good enough to improve their learning. That's not what it's about. Lower achievement achieving students will become disillusioned if you're constantly moving them on to stuff they don't understand higher achieving students get fed up if they have to repeat stuff which isn't which they already know what we need to be doing is getting each student each group of students doing work at the level they need to make progress Okay, I'm starting to understand your your argument a bit more now because the way I first interpreted it in the book was like say you're doing a topic that's got eight big ideas in it. I was understanding as in, you know, if you don't, not getting to the end means you actually only cover five of the eight, eight ideas because students don't seem to be grasping them along the way. But the way I'm interpreting what you're saying now is you do cover the eight ideas, but some of the students just manage to fully grasp it all and can do the higher level questions for all eight, but other students can do what's required to get the kind of lower level marks for all eight, which makes sense to me. But I would say that even with the most higher, highest achieving students, if it was a particularly difficult thing and they did only get seven of the eight bits covered, 
it is far better to be totally confident in those seven bits than to cover all eight and not be overly confident with four of them. You're going to get better exam results with kids who are more confident in what they do know. Yeah, maybe. Also, maybe um, maybe none of, very little of that stuff's going to come up on the exam, and the stuff they choose to put on the exam is the stuff that you didn't get to at all. Yeah, it's a, it's it's an interesting um, it's an interesting one. The other thing I'm a bit worried about is it's a bit of a slippery slope. Um, I feel because if you're kind of saying, oh, I'm going to kind of stop and slow down whenever students aren't getting it, you know, acknowledging that as John Mason says, teaching takes place in time, but learning takes place over time. Often students aren't going to get things first time round, and the I feel like the solution often isn't to kind of stop and keep on going over the same ground. It's actually going to go, all right, we haven't all got this today. That's all right. We're going to revisit tomorrow in the starter and in a couple of days in the starter again. Let's just leave that for now, move on to the next thing, and then we'll come and revisit it and see if we can go a bit deeper next time. But if, if we take the opposite approach and say, oh, well, we haven't all got it, so let's just pause and let's just all make sure we've really got it. And then that still doesn't work. It's like, oh, there's still two of us who still don't get it. Let's just let's just pause and let's just stay here. It's a slippery slope where you can end up kind of not making the progress that would be possible if you just kind of set the bar and used really highly effective teaching and instructional approaches to get students there. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I mean, I think what you said earlier on about your starters where you sort of like have things from, you know, like yesterday but also the week before or two weeks before or whatever, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about sort of waiting until every single student has got everything. And if there are key things, you know, some things that, you know, clearly are an issue, one of the things will be that those are the things which you as a teacher make a note of and then those are the ones that you might go back to when you have your revision sessions or your after-school catch-ups or whatever. So you actually, again, target revision and catch-up at things which are actually required rather than just, well, let's just do a general revision session on, you know, chemistry or whatever. What I'm not saying is that, you know, you make sure every single student has reached a certain level before you move on. That's never possible, and you're quite right. But I think what is important is that the teacher, and more importantly the students, realise it's all about moving their individual learning on and you can keep doing that and you can do it and even if a a student has only got two of today's three learning objectives that's two more than they had at the start you know that's what we need to do Mm. yeah I think that's a really valuable outlook and I, I was using a very similar line. I'm running a maths intervention at the school I'm working at the moment with, with three boys who've really been struggling and um, you know we had our first session just two days ago and there were 15 questions and, and you know, one of the, a couple of the boys only got four or five of them right. And I really emphasize, you know, it's not about getting all the, the questions right. It's simply about setting a baseline and if you got four to write today and you get five or six right tomorrow, that's an improvement. Absolutely. Then you are making progress. Yeah, they really perked up when I kind of emphasized that and couched it in those, those terms. So we're on the same page with that, that idea. That part of the idea, at least, <laughs> that's all right. I think I think we can leave that. But I think you know, it's a, it's a it's an interesting and important thing for for teachers to think about and wrestle with, for sure. I'm keen to discuss something that was really interesting in your book to me. Uh, one of the many things that was really interesting was the idea was your section on linking formative and summative assessment. 
And you talked about this kind of, you referred to it as the million pound question and the answers that you got to this million pound question the first time that you asked it. Could you tell us, Paul, what is this million pound question and what are the answers that you often get? Literally, this is the ultimate question. If you think you are assessing your kids and you want to find out how your formative assessment or whatever is going, I got kids from a whole range of subjects and I asked them all the same question. I simply said to them, right, if you got a grade B in your last exam or your mock or whatever, what would you have to do to improve that to get a grade A in the next one? Obviously, you can bury the letters or whatever, but that's the basic question. You should try this because the chances are you will get three basic answers. One is I've got to work harder in some way or another. That's a a basic sort of phrase. Secondly, I've either got to do some revision or I've got to revise more or better, something about my revision. And the third one, well, I'm not going to be able to get any better because I can't, I'm not very good at maths or science or whatever else it is. And that's very interesting because there's a big chunk of kids who think that learning is sort of fixed somehow. You know, I'm never going to be any good at maths. I'm never going to be any good at science or physics or whatever. And those are basically the three answers you will get. And, you know, feel free, go and try it. It'd be interesting to see. Mm. I think it's a great question. It's very much a coaching question. Jim Knight, when I I had Jim Knight, a coaching expert on the podcast, and essentially the question he asks, the first question he asks when after a lesson visit will be, you know, what would you give that lesson out of out of 10? You know, if zero is worst lesson you've ever ever taught and and 10 is an absolutely incredible lesson, what would you give it? And then they give you an answer and and he will say, cool, what would need to happen for it to move to, say they said seven, for it to move to an eight? So, it's very much along the same lines of in terms of a formative and a self-reflective question and it's it's interesting that you said there's kind of three answers that students will give one is try harder one is revise more and one is well i can't get any better um if i remember those three correctly what are the kind of answers that right now to listeners that might not sound very much like a million pound question right because if it just leads to those three answers it's not not all that helpful so where do we where do we actually want to get students to what kind of answers do you want to hear students give to the million pound question what i'd like to hear is students actually saying what specifically they're going to do what work are you going to do what actual pieces of work are you going to do that you're going to work on what is your vision what bits of your vision and how are you going to make them better those sort of things and definitely nobody saying i can't get any better because you know that's that's not an answer everybody can get better but what's interesting is you get those answers regardless of age ability attainment anything you will get the same answers i've got the same answers in the grammar school i've got the same answers from kids who can't read and write Mm. okay so we want we're trying to get to more specific answers yeah so this is this is what this part of the podcast is all about and what this part of your book was about. How do we get students to those more specific answers? Let's start with your idea of predicted versus actual mark sheets. Tell us about these predicted versus actual mark sheets, Paul. Right. Well, in the book, the front covers of the ex- science exam sheets didn't look anything like a traditional cover with you know name grade there's a lot of information one of the things is that we used to finish all the science tests either five or ten minutes before the end of the allotted time for the period 
in order for students to have some time to do an immediate self-reflection where they would go through each question or maybe each part question, if it's like a complicated paper, and actually write down how many marks they thought they were going to get for that question or for that part question. Now, for low, really low sort of attaining students, sometimes that will just be a smiley, a sad face or a, an in-between one. But some indication of how well they thought they'd done on individual questions. And then when the teacher marks the paper, they put the marks for each question down the, next to that. And by looking at those predictions compared with the actual marks, both the teacher and the student can find out so much information. It's absolutely astonishing. I mean, the first time you do it, particularly if you do it in a, in a mixed school, you probably find the boys are totally overconfident and the girls lack confidence as a starting point. As you go on with it, you find out lots more things. And, and it's always astonishing. What other things can you find out? You may find, for example, that students, a whole cohort of students, think they've done really well on a particular question that they've then all not done well on. And now as a teacher, it's like, well, why did they all think they were going to do well on that? What was it about that? You know, and then you might look at a question and begin to look at where they lost marks. And you might find that actually they probably were confident with the knowledge, but actually they lost marks because of an exam skill. You know, perhaps they didn't interpret the question properly, didn't read it properly or couldn't interpret a graph or something like that. Students themselves can find things out because students quite often think that they're not as good at remembering stuff, knowledge than they actually are and actually achieve more things. And they, and quite often for them, that's quite good, you know, because it is a, a confidence booster in that they actually, you did remember the names of all the parts of the hearts on, on the diagram, but you didn't think you'd got more than four out of seven or that sort of thing. It's really powerful as a way of giving information. And you could, I mean, if you had the time, particularly during revision sessions and things, you could have the time to say, well, you know, why did you think you had done so badly on that question when actually you did well? Or why did, or the reverse? Mm. Cool. Something else you emphasized in the book was the importance of students producing revision resources, which, you know, makes a lot of sense. But I did want to delve a bit deeper and ask, in your mind, what makes a good revision resource? And, and Perhaps just as importantly, how did you support students to create high-quality revision resources? Well, it's like everything else. There's no one-size-fits-all. I would never tell students how to do revision resources. I mean, like they learn, they are taught techniques, but I would never tell them which one to use. So different kids would need to do different techniques. So if, it, if a diagram works for you or a, a list of questions and answers or whatever, whatever works for the individual. What is extremely important and what students don't always understand is that revision resources need to be usable. You need to be able to get the information back. A content-driven subject like science, girls' grammar school, girls love doing multicolored extravaganzas for revision and they will cram as much on a piece of paper as possible in a hundred different shades of colors and then when you say to them right can you find this fact they can't it looks beautiful but they can't find the information so one of the things that we introduced and what was extremely successful was things like end of topic tests 
and midterm tests and things like that, we did allowing the students to actually bring their revision resources in and use them when they did the tests. Now, obviously, if you're doing that in the girls' grammar school, the very first thing they all said was, well, we'll get all the answers right if we've got all the, our resources. And, of course, they don't because there's tons of other reasons why not, including those I've just used. But one of the things that we noticed was that, first of all, peer pressure, and we've done it in other schools, not just girls' grammar schools, but peer pressure, it was extraordinary. You know, the kid who didn't turn up with revision resources the first time and was the only one who didn't have any, bought some with them the next time without me or anyone else having to tell them because they just felt that they were the only one who hadn't. And also the quality of resources got better and better. You know, boys in our sixth form at the girls' school, would look at what the girls were bringing in uh, when they're getting out their little screwed-up scrap of paper and go, blimey, they've bought all that and I've only got this. And a few weeks later, they're bringing in more. So it was extremely good. It was good for the students because they were able to see whether or not they could actually find information fairly quickly and easily in their resources. And many of the girls in particular discovered that cramming a load of stuff onto a piece of paper wasn't a good idea and you needed a bit more white space on the paper to be able to find things, for example. So it was really useful. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's just kind of like a self-correcting mechanism of letting them bring it in and see and, and iterate over time. I like it a lot. There was a one specific method that you used within the schools you worked in, which you called the MARCS method, that is the M-A-R-C-K-S method. And this was for helping students to kind of eke more marks out of the knowledge that they had on assessments. Can you give us a bit of an overview of the marks approach? Right. Okay. This came about when myself and a colleague of mine were fed up with the fact that we were marking exam papers where kids were losing loads of marks for what we call silly mistakes. And you're writing things on them like, read the question properly, you muppet or whatever. And we realized that there were a few basic things that were losing marks as well as just not knowing science stuff. So we came up with the following letters. M stood for maths or graph skills, which is always a problem in science. They don't transfer the skills even if they've got them. The A was for application of science, whereby kids learn an example, but think the science only applies to that one example. So, for example, they will learn that the moon has got very low gravity because it's got low mass and that Jupiter has got a very high gravity because it's got high mass. But then if you say to them, you know, Mars has got an in-between mass, they won't be able to tell you, estimate what the gravity is because they haven't realised that it's something that could be applied elsewhere. Not reading the question was the R, so we've had maths, application, A. Reading the questions properly is a real, real problem, not just because kids have poor learning abilities, but sometimes, as we found out in the grammar school, kids are used to skim reading if they're very able, and they think they can do the same with exams and they make mistakes. The C was clarity, which in our case was things like scientific vocabulary, might be units, it might be avoiding using words like it, them and they and actually naming things because you have to do that in science papers. The K was knowledge, 
we wanted it there to show that it was part of the thing. And the S was what we call, we ran statements per mark. The idea, if you do a three-mark question, you need to say three different things, not one big, long, waffly answer. So what we did was when we marked the exams, the kids would get a tick if they got a question right. And then if they got a question wrong, instead of getting a cross, they got one or more of the letters. Now, we're guessing. So if a kid gets a question wrong, which has got a calculation in it, it could be a math or a, so you could get an M, but it could be that they didn't read the question properly. So it could be an R, or it could be they've written down the wrong units, in which case it could be a C. So they could get three letters, even though they've only got one question wrong. So it's sort of, it was done like that. When the students got their work back, there was a little tally chart on the front and they put how many M's and A's and R's and C's and K's and S's they got. And almost always it's mostly knowledge, but the students are always absolutely amazed at how many other ways in which they lose marks in their exams. And it has worked right across the board from the very lowest attainers right up to people going off to Oxford and Cambridge right from year seven. Well, how do you know it worked? Because we have used it to improve exam results in so many schools and with so many students. We introduced this after the mocks in year 11 at a girl's secondary school, not a grammar school. So uh, these, uh, there was a group of girls that they were very low attaining in science. They had no motivation their results were poor it was self-fulfilling we introduced this we gave them back their papers we told them how many actual marks in terms of real marks not percentages they needed to get to the next grade and then said right have a look where could you have picked up those marks? And there were kids going, oh, I could have used a calculator on this question and that question, got two more marks, you know, bang, done. I could have used a more scientific word here than calling it them, and I would have got And these kids, their school's results went up by 11%, and that was in about a four-month period between their mark and their actual thing. The kids were absolutely amazed with it. They were like, oh, it's so easy. You know, I haven't got to learn loads more stuff. I've just got to read the questions more carefully. Yeah, you're helping students to see the gap and you're helping them to, to see how they can bridge it and how they can make progress. That's fantastic. And, and linking this back to that million-pound question, you know, if you ask these students after you've used the marks approach, that million-pound question, which you can repeat for us and, and for our listeners, what, what answers will they get? I literally did. I, I had a, a year 12 biology group and I sat at parents' evening saying to each of them in front of their parents, you know, you got this in your mock this year, what do you need to do to improve next year? And the sort of answers I was getting was things like, well, I've got to improve my clarity because I tend to sort of, you know, say protein rather than globular protein. I tend to not be quite clear and precise enough in my language skills. I had a, a I had a girl who said, well, what I've noticed is that I get all the short answer questions nearly all right. I get the long answer questions right, but the three and four mark questions, I don't write enough statements to get the marks. So she went away, having discussed this at parents' evening, and did every single past exam paper, every three and four mark question on all of them, and got an A star rather than an A. 
people were saying things like, you know, I've got to read the questions more carefully. Um, I've got to make sure I read the bit at the, at the top before the actual question appears to start with part A or whatever. And, and I, I haven't been reading that carefully enough. That level of information from kids, you know, to what have you got to do to improve, is a world apart from I've got to revise harder. I mean, even with knowledge, one of the girls at this school who was really low attaining, when I said to her, what have you got to do to be better? She said, well, I thought I'd learned the stuff on heart. She said, and I thought I could do that. But actually, I hadn't learned enough of the parts to be able to label all the diagram. Now, that's a world away from I've got to revise more. You know, that's a girl who actually knows something specific that she's got to do with her revision. And that was a girl who had no confidence with science whatsoever, able to have a conversation like that. Yeah, that's great, Paul. That, that's wonderful. And it's really moving into that space of metacognition, helping students to reflect on their learning. And, and a, real, a real theme that's come throughout this whole podcast, really, which is about emphasising that it's not about what's going on in the mind of the teacher it's not about clarity for the teacher. It's not about understanding for the teacher or learning intentions for the teacher. It's all about putting things in terms that are relevant for the student and that the student can comprehend. You know, from learning intentions, a student that make a lot of difference and empower students to discussions where you're actually putting students in the driver's seat. And now to this marks approach where you're again putting students in the driver's seat. It's just a wonderful theme. And I think it's it's probably uh, one of the main reasons why Dylan William did have such positive things to say about about your book and which is why he, he recommended it to John Cat and John Cat subsequently recommended it to me as, as a potential good fit for the podcast. Paul, another question on this Marx idea before we move on to the next section of the interview. I'm wondering if you ever, because I, I guess I'm thinking about using Marx in the maths classroom, but also the increased marking load for the teacher of identifying the specific source of the error and, and adding these letters. Did you ever actually just hand back the ticks and crosses to students and then get them to add the letters to represent the M-A-R-C-K and the S in addition to doing the tally? Or did you always have teachers add the letters as part of the marking process? Right. We always did it as teachers and actually it takes less time. Almost everybody found that it took less time because you tended to write things like read the question or, you know, units or things like that. Uh, uh, teachers do things like that all the time and actually it was much quicker. What I have done is I've produced exam papers with pre-written answers, some of which are right, some of which are slightly right, some of which have got mistakes of reading the question or clarity or whatever in them. And I've used those as revision tools and the students have marked those themselves using the M-A-R-C-K-S and they've had to look. And it's really interesting when they do that because then they start arguing about whether something should or shouldn't get a mark and they're sort of, well, I don't think this, you know, and I had a girl say, I've just realised, you know, when I read these answers and see how the clarity is really bad, that's just what mine are like. So, yeah, that we've I've done it that way, but we always put them on for ourselves when we marked. We might move now, Paul, into just a few closing questions, if you're happy with that. The first one would be, what are what are three of your favourite books on education? And I'm happy to hear if, if, if you think that it's important for us, our, our educational listeners, to explore a bit outside education, we're happy to hear some recommendations there as well. Like many teachers, 
who are caught up in a cycle of marketing and so on, there'd never been that much time to read educational books. So the ones I have really focused on have been the ones that have been about assessment for learning and formative assessment because that's what's been passionate ever since I was involved in the King's Project. The one I've gone to most would have been assessment for learning, putting it into practice, which was by Paul Black, Dylan Williams, Christine Harrison and the others in the King's College team, which basically was the more practical version of the little working inside the black box leaflet. Mm, okay. I think Dylan's embedded formative assessment book as well. You know, I mean, for over 20 years now, I have worked with people like Dylan and Paul Black and Christine Harrison. I cannot speak highly enough about them. You know, these people changed me as a person let known as a teacher. I'd probably have to say those are my two favourite books on education. There are others that I've read on education which are very much sort of along the same lines, by Shirley Clark, for example. But I think those are the two that I would pick. Uh, so I'm only going to pick two. Great. Love it. What advice, Paul, would you give to your first-year teacher self? I think if I could go back... I would tell myself that it doesn't matter if I go on to become the best teacher ever. That is irrelevant. What matters is that my students become the best learners that they can be. And there is a big difference between those two things. (laughs) You know, it's not about how well I teach. It's about how well they learn. I love that, Paul. I love that. I might also say to myself that, Getting better results from students isn't about me as a teacher doing more work. And I think that's something I've tried to emphasize throughout the book. Teachers work as hard as they can. No one can do any more. There are too many times I've been to professional development things where it sounds like we've all got to do something else, something else new. What I've tried to show today, hopefully, but even more so in the book when people read, is that it's not about more work to do these things. It's just a different approach. And I think if I went back to my first year self, I'd say, you know, you don't have to work harder. You have to work differently to get better results. Mm. That's great, Paul. And that first answer, you know, it's not about becoming the best teacher. It's about helping your students become the best learners. That's definitely the, uh, I'd say that's the bit of advice that the only ever question, answer this question that I'd actually consider getting tattooed because uh, it's such a good one, Paul. So thanks for that. I absolutely love it. Next closing question, Paul, what, what are you currently excited about? Well, obviously, I'm quite excited that I'm an author. I can't believe it. You know, I mean, here's me. I was a kid. I I, I bought up in a council home, you know, with a very poor family, first member of my family ever to go to university. And now I'm an author, you know. It's astonishing. But what I'm most excited about that is I genuinely feel I have got something that allows me to help other science teachers improve their students learning i mean i i say i've spoken at tons of conferences i've spoken in lots of schools i've supported loads of individuals and departments i retired a few years ago and part of the reason for writing this book during covid was that i wasn't getting the opportunity to 
go and speak to school physically I wasn't allowed to go and help people and so I'm excited that even now I can still get to people like yourself across the other side of the world it's brilliant yeah it is brilliant that's wonderful and yeah I've thought of another closing question Paul that isn't one that I usually ask people but with the million pound question who gets the million pounds <laughs> with a million pound question who gets the million pound as a teacher i would feel i had earned the million pound if the students said things like they said after they'd done the mark stuff you know that would be my my internal reward i would feel well that's worth more than a million pound hearing something like that i think that's the best way i could answer that one <laughs> let's go paul love that and final question any last calls to action or things you'd like listeners to go away today and do, Paul? Presumably if people are listening, it's because they want to improve the learning of their students. Hopefully this has given them a flavour. You know, the successful science teaching book that I've done, it says science teaching, but I've got to be honest, you know, there's a lot of transferable skills, which I'm sure you'd agree, you know, for other subjects. Too many teachers like myself say they haven't got time to re read books, but then what they end up doing is trying to reinvent the wheel. You know, like spend some time. As for the students, more work isn't always the answer. What you need is to actually, you know, do things slightly differently. Can I also just, I mean, I want to quote something from the book because, like, I've talked a lot about, you know, this as being a way of improving. In 2010, my highly achieving grammar school had a 70% pass rate across the school for A-levels. Now, that was students getting an A-star or an A at A-level, which is very good. However, biology was slightly under at 68%. And the head spoke to me and said, look, you know, we need to do more of this uh, assessment for learning stuff. So we really went through this in a big way. And over the next five years, we incorporated all the things. We introduced marks and all the you know, revision resource tests and everything else right across the science department. Five years later, in 2015, the school's percentage for A star A had moved from 70 to 75 biology have moved from 68 to 92 now that is a massive improvement that's insane and pushing kids to that level at the top end when kids are already achieving very well that you know this stuff works and that did that and as i say i've got plenty of evidence this doesn't just work in girls grammar schools you know as i said the very low achieving girls school had an 11% increase just by introducing marks and a few other bits and pieces that are mentioned in the books you know this stuff does work it, it was shown to work in it working inside the black box 20 odd years ago and these this isn't just nice ideas you asked me a question at the beginning about what was the point of education and I said to improve students life chances you know if 92% of kids are getting an A-star A rather than 68%, that's more kids who've got a better life chance. That's what I'm all about. That's what I'd like people to take away. Paul Spenceley, that is a lovely message to finish on and it's wonderful to have the level of evidence that you have to back up all these incredible strategies that you've been recommending and sharing with us today. I also love how you returned 
back you 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 you're doing my job for me paul you took us back to the start for a bit of a plenary discussion at the end there to refer back to the purpose of education that you referred to at the start no guest has ever done that before and i really respect respect you for that and i it also shows the extent to which you do have this kind of overarching view of where we're starting where we're going to within the lesson that is this podcast and i'm sure that's that kind of sense is has served you very very well or i know it served you very well throughout your career. In, in today's podcast, you talked about when I asked you what you were most excited about, you talked about the fact that you were excited about the fact that you feel like you have something to help other teachers improve their teaching and their students learn learning. And I absolutely couldn't agree more. And I really love these episodes where I get into the nitty gritty with practicing teachers or recently practicing teachers like yourself and like the the one of the other most popular podcasts with Sammy Kempner a few months ago, because I feel like the insights that come out are just so great. And when I push you on questions and I ask, I ask you to model things, you know, we did the little role play. It's just so real and so rich uh, and so wonderful. So, Paul Spensley, thanks for your time today. Thanks for all the insights you've shared through the book. And I know many listeners will have gained much from today's podcast. And I can, I can confidently say, Paul, you have earned the million pounds. Thank you. Thanks, Ollie. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ERRR podcast with Paul Spensley. If you're keen to never miss a podcast, blog post, or other exciting educational announcement, then jump onto ollielovell.com forward slash subscribe to make sure that you get all updates from me about teaching and learning. That web address again is ollielovell.com forward slash subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, then please share it with friends and colleagues. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.